0: so you can make your creative dreams possible. Go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level to learn more and enroll now. Enrollments are open for only a short time, so please, if you're interested and you're ready to take your interiors to the next level, go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level. I'm Natalie Walton, and this is Imprint, a podcast about creating a home and life you love. Each week, I'm here to share with you some of the biggest lessons I've learned during my career and life. Some of them I wish I'd learned a lot sooner because they would have saved me a huge amount of time, stress, and even money. Many of these ideas could have accelerated my journey as a creative and business owner. I also feature interviews with inspiring creatives, entrepreneurs, and experts to help you focus on what's most important in your life. Today, I'm going to interview interior designer Arabella McIntosh. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to thank you for all of your beautiful comments and feedback on this podcast. If you haven't done so already, it would mean so much if you could please subscribe, rate and review wherever you're listening to the podcast today. It really does help other like-minded creatives out there find this content and help them on their creative journey. Okay, back to today's episode. Hello everyone. I hope you're all well. Recently, I drove down to Yamba, which is about an hour and a half south of Byron Bay to meet Arabella McIntosh. I will share some behind the scenes pics with you in this week's newsletter. You can sign up at nataliewalton.com. Some of you might remember Arabella's home in Venice Beach, California, which featured in my first book, This Is Home. And some of you might also remember that I featured her home in Bondi before that in Real Living magazine. Anyway, we talk about that and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy learning more about Arabella and her creative journey. Hi, Arabella. Thank you so much for welcoming me into well, I'm going to call it your home, but maybe we can talk a little bit about that in a moment. This is uh, we're in Yamba, which is on the east coast of Australia, and we're about two hours south of Byron. So I just drove down here for the morning and it's so nice to see Arabella again because we were just working out before I hit record that it's been about three years, three and a half years since we last met when I went to L.A. and met Arabella. It was actually for the second time because we had shot your home in Bondi when you were living in Australia. Then you went over to the States to live there for a while. And I shot your home for my first book. This is home and you were the first home that we shot on our Kristen mine, our kind of worldwide trip for that book. And uh, we've kind of been in contact ever since, and it's been really interesting to watch your journey since then. So I'm excited to finally get the chance to interview you for the podcast. And I guess, yeah, welcome. And I'm going to ask you, um, first of all, for you to share a little bit about your story and the very beginning so because i'm really interested in the types of childhoods that people have and how that informs their journey going forward i think it's always interesting to see what kind of imprint that has on people so do you want to start at the very beginning arabella and just tell us where you grew up and the type of childhood you had
1: sure well thank you for coming as well and um i appreciate you driving down this morning nice to have you here um so my childhood I grew up in uh, the inner west of Sydney in a town, well, a village, I guess, called Balmain, which in the late 80s, 90s was quite a barefoot, hippie, artistic community. Uh, I was, I guess, imprinted by my friends' parents and my, my parents' friends who were sort of all creatives, sort of photographers, stylists, um, filmmakers, uh, very early on sort of had that creative imprint um, in sort of a Freelance, freelance sort of careers. I think my parents were antique dealers. So we had a store on the main street of Balmain where we lived sort of in a warehouse style house behind that. So we spent a lot of time in the store with my parents watching them work. My mum is an artist and my dad restored all the furniture. So quite creative in their own rights. My dad's sort of a master craftsman. Uh, there's not much he he can't really make or do and so watching him figure things out creatively was sort of yeah like a big part of my life from early on I don't sort of remember having a whole lot of toys or yeah I didn't sort of grow up I guess the same way that I see other people growing up or even the way somewhat my kids like so many toys and and things like that we didn't really have that much stuff and it wasn't like one of those oh I went to school um barefoot and walked five miles it wasn't like a sad story like that it was just that our our entertainment was by imagining things and making things we would set up stalls outside our parents store and imitate them and sort of make things craft things and see what we could sell or uh i had a I had dolls which i learned to sew quite early on and i think i was sort of eight when i started sewing the clothes for my dolls like it was yeah, we just sort of made things up as we went.
0: And did you, so you say we? So, do you have siblings and how many? I
1: have one sister.
0: Okay. And you, you the older or the younger? I'm one? the younger sister. Okay. And yeah. I'm always interested <laughs> in that as well, like the dynamic that that plays on someone. Were you very similar in personalities? And do you think that did you follow her or did you um, do your own thing? And what kind of age Um, gap as well?
1: She's sort of two and a half years older than me and we we are very similar. Uh, Probably not so much in personalities but in interests we're very similar. I guess we did very similar things and I probably followed her a lot in terms of the things she did, particularly sporting-wise. If she played hockey, I played hockey. If she did gymnastics, I wanted to do gymnastics. Uh, So she she had a better focus than me. I'm sort of, I guess, more of a hummingbird with the things that I'm – passionate about now sort of be into something and then move on to the next thing and i'm a little more like sort of uh yeah i'd sort of flit around a little bit more Whereas she is sort of the person that once she finds something that she's interested in she goes the whole way and she is a complete expert and pro at whatever that is and like whether it was gymnastics she was the one that went to nationals like she was the one that really had the, the first child. Yes, the, yeah, <laughs> the first child and I just sort of went, oh that looks good, that's good. I'll I'll do that or yeah, I just sort of followed along, I guess.
0: Yeah. What does she do now?
1: Uh she works for local government, so in the waste minimization department. So she's a town planner by trade, but she also studied environmental science, so has sort of her career sort of changed from sort of town planning to sustainability uh, like sustainable what do you call it? Um, like advising on sustainable policy, uh, working into urban agriculture, and now she works for Yarra Council in, in Victoria in the Waste minimization Department. So she's, um, she's been a big influence in my sort of approach to sustainability.
0: Yeah, I can sort of connect the dots a little yeah, bit now.
1: Yeah, and she goes, as I say, she goes deep into, you know, her knowledge base on these things is just extraordinary. Yeah,
0: yeah, a great resource for you, no doubt. It is, yeah, yeah. I,
1: I call her a lot and say, can you give me, can you consult me on this or give me an idea of this? And she just has so many resources and ideas and points me in the right direction all the time. Yeah.
0: Okay, so you started like your early years in Balmain, but you moved to the Hunter Valley, didn't you, at some point? Mm-hmm. So when I
1: was sort of, just before I started high school, we moved um, to a small town, called Morpeth in the Hunter Valley, which is just sort of inland of Newcastle. Uh, My parents closed down their antique business. They'd sort of been doing it for, I think, 12 years and were ready to sort of move on to a different chapter of their life and a bit of a tree change, I guess, and had a property on the river in Morpeth. And my sister and I were really, really big into horse riding. So it was an easy decision for us to sort of go up there and follow that passion.
0: And how old were you when that happened?
1: I think I was 11.
0: Okay. So that's quite a formative age, isn't it? To have something like that happen. Yeah. We went
1: from like quite a big primary school to going to a primary school. I think there was less than 20 kids in my grade. So it was quite a big change for me to go from a big sort of city school to quite a small school. But it was really, it was a really good move for our family.
0: Yeah. And you instantly enjoyed being in that kind of environment in the countryside?
1: Yeah, we were. I mean, we were lucky enough that we'd been coming back and forth a fair bit. Um, on the weekends, we'd had the house a little bit earlier than we we'd for a couple of years before we moved. So we were going up on the weekends and um, doing pony club and things like that. So it wasn't like a huge shock for us. We had some friends and things that we'd made over those weekend. Uh, yeah, those weekends that we were up there. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, so then let's go to high school and those kind of years when you start to kind of get – I guess a bit of an inkling about your interests and what you think you might want to do post-school years. Did you have any sense of what you wanted to do? No. I, to be honest, I, I,
1: and I mean this in the nicest way, I watched my parents run their own business and being very creative and I did not want to do that. I watched, you know, how many weekends that they worked and I was so, I wanted to work for another comp I wanted to work for a big company. I wanted to have a... reliable wage and I just I really pushed against what had been brought up knowing I wanted new furniture I couldn't understand why we always had to have furniture that someone else owned everything was old and everyone else had these sort of minimal houses with white furniture and it all just seemed so shiny and easy and that's sort of what I wanted and I, I studied business my sister sort of followed more of that creative she did art for her HSC, whereas I just said, absolutely not. And I really sort of pushed the other way. I studied business and that type of thing. And yeah, I kind of rebelled against my sort of, I guess now I'm, I know deep-seated passions, but I didn't sort of recognise that as a, as a teenager.
0: It's so funny because in many ways, though, then you're, you and your sister have kind of almost swap roles Absolutely, that you've sort of gone this completely creative path Mm -hmm. and with no sort of in some way security or like you know the conventionality of working for an employer and your sister has gone back the other way. Yeah she's worked for (laughs) council for
1: yeah for a long like most of her career worked in in government so yeah we have sort of definitely switched. It's yeah it took me quite a while sort of not into my 20s before I sort of accepted yeah the direction and it was a slow transition i think it wasn't something that i really did intent like with intention it just sort of happened organically for me
0: okay so take me to then so you you went and did business at uni is that right yeah so it was i
1: was accepted into a degree and i i still wasn't really sure at that point i i actually wasn't even in year 11 i wasn't even planning on getting my uai to go to uni and then i sort of caught up on some subjects and thought, yes, no, I'm going to do business, this is what I'm going to do. And then I left, I did completely switched and went to fashion design at, at Tay for a year and then travelled, just sort of thought, I'm just going to get away and clear my head and just do what every you know, teenager does and take some, take some time. And then I came back and I did study, uh, I started a combined degree in business and law, which I really loved the law side of it. And I, I wanted to do corporate law and that's the reason I did the combined degree, but I was actually more interested in the law, but I could see it changing my personality in it and not in a way that I really wanted to sort of see progress. And so I decided to drop the law and finish the business. My dad sort of really pushed me to finish my business degree. Uh yeah, and so I and I did. So I, I finished my business degree and then it's funny you don't really know I well maybe more so now but for me when I grew up I didn't really know that there was that many careers out there outside of those sort of standard teacher you know these ones that you sort of rec- easily recognizable and had I known that there was more jobs out there that combined both left and right brain I might not have resisted it so much
0: yeah I that was very much my experience as well I I mean I always loved writing when I was um at high school and but i knew that i i couldn't be a struggling artist you know i couldn't be mm. a struggling writer and so i started to do an economics degree and quickly decided that that was not for me but i yeah i thought well i guess i'd better be a journalist because i just couldn't see how like yeah it was like you were an accountant or you were a lawyer or you were a journalist Absolutely. or you know mm. these very defined kind of roles so i think the world's changed a lot since then but certainly sort of back then I think it was much more defined and so what was your first job then once you finished uni uh so i I'd, I'd started working for a, a fashion designer um
1: during my degree and when i finished that i ended up working in the wholesale side of their businesses um, in design and production management so i spent the first couple of years outside of my degree going back to fashion just sort of flip-flopping all over the place but i worked um traveling between uh, Newcastle and Bali um, doing collections for that brand um, and working, yeah, working. they had a retail store and then a wholesale um, part of the business as well. And how did you get that? Like, was that through connections or did you intern or what I started? You... I started on the shop floor. Right. Yeah. So while I was studying, I worked weekends um, just yeah, as a sales assistant. Yeah. I sort of I would also work um, for an interior design company in Newcastle as well, doing um, you know working on the shop floor and then working Sort of, there was in-house interior designers as well so they were sort of the two jobs that i did through uni yep of course as well as bar work as everyone else does but yeah uh yeah that and then that business kept growing and i just sort of changed roles within within that company
0: and did you have any mentors within that company
1: yeah i would i would say um the owner and director of that business linda she was I learned a lot from her. She was someone that was insanely creative and, and talented, but she had this way of sort of trusting, like recognizing that she couldn't do everything and trusting other people. And I think she trusted me in my process and and that let her be more creative, whereas she didn't sort of try and control every sort of element of it, which I think is really hard to do when you're in a creative field because you want to have control over everything and that process of letting go is quite hard. And uh, She also would sort of, I guess I, this is my, my take on how she did it, maybe, maybe it wasn't, but I sort of felt like she was quite flexible with the last sort of, or fluid with the last sort of maybe five, 10% of her design collections. We would sort of once would get Um, overseas to sort of work out what the final touches were in terms of found materials and that's something that I've sort of put into my work is sort of having quite a big you know a a solid idea of where where I want to go with a project but then leaving you know a little bit of um, a little bit of room for fluidity in terms of what materials I find and just sort of making a few last minute decisions and I think that um, problem solving gives you a sort of more bespoke or more um, unique outcome.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so what was then your next kind of couple of steps after working for that business?
1: I I then um moved to Sydney and moved back to Sydney and worked for um another fashion company but in buying. So I started out um I guess it's the iconic now, um, when it was just a startup and I was an assistant buyer in women's wear there and was there for almost four years, working my way up to senior um senior buying positions yeah so i mean that for me that is a job that i never knew existed if someone had told me that when i was studying fashion design i would have thought absolutely like spreadsheets and collections and it's just that left brain left brain right brain sort of mix and that was just for me it was like i mind-boggling that that job even was out there and i had no
0: idea yeah and so what were the things that you learned what were some of the big lessons you learned from that job
1: planning um trusting the data um and like analytics it was a very yeah analytical job um sort of basing it off um customer behavior and patterns and things like that so i guess the the business side of it like the business planning like how to actually forecast um business performance and buy to that i think that was probably the big thing that i took out of there. yeah, as well as getting really good at spreadsheets.
0: <laughs> and so what, what happened after the Iconic? Where did you go?
1: Um, so after the Iconic, I left and that's when I started Palm Beach Black. So I'd been working in, in denim and I, yeah, I sort of wanted to move away from fashion and um, the seasonality of fashion and find a use for the materials that were heading for landfill. So I started to find a... A second chapter i guess for the denim that people no longer wanted and that's when i started sort of sourcing vintage jeans and making them into pillows and starting this sort of uh, business based on the circular economy which i kind of didn't even know what that term was at that point i just knew that there I, there were so many beautiful materials already in like in circulation that it just seemed so crazy that they didn't have a second life and particularly with denim it just gets better with age so to give it a second chapter just made complete sense to me and then after that i sort of started that business and i ended up um going to work for the sister company of the iconic and working as a furniture buyer and that's when i sort of started that move into interiors um buying the furniture doing private label and then doing a lot of in-house styling for lifestyle shots
0: and and working in the studio doing a lot of styling and at any point did you feel like either when you started Palm Beach Black or even maybe doing the styling that like this is the thing that I want to be doing or had that not happened yet?
1: Oh I, I mean I loved I loved my role at the Iconic. I, like it was insane it was the best time of my life but it there was a point when I decided I didn't want to be in fashion anymore and taking the job with furniture that all made sense to me I, it was something that I was very very familiar to me growing up obviously and my parents being furniture dealers there's so many things clicked for me yeah there was just so much knowledge that i had that i had sort of just stored away and tried to sort of push down that just sort of all just came back to life like construction and i just yeah just things just started to then slot into place for me
0: and what about so when you started palm beach black was that initially a bit of a side Kind of hustle or a side business or were you doing that um in itself like i'm just wondering was that a bit of a leap of faith for you to sort of because after working for all these companies and you saying that you didn't want to do <laughs> something that wasn't working for a business mm. was that your first big leap of faith in trusting yourself
1: yeah i guess so and it was you know it was a side thing i i when i left the iconic i left because i was pregnant with my first child it wasn't so I was on maternity leave, and um, as a lot of women do, we decide that we, life isn't complicated enough. I'm going to start a business whilst having a newborn baby. So it, yeah, it started up as a side as a side project, and just sort of, yeah, evolved from there.
0: Yeah, and I think that's maybe shortly after that's when I met you in Bondi because you yes. still had Palm Beach Black. Yes, and. I don't know if you were pregnant or I was uh, just pregnant. You were right. you were pregnant. Oh, I think yeah. you were <laughs> yeah, probably you were pregnant and then <laughs> I was yeah, quite quite early days in my pregnancy. Right. Yeah. Okay. And um yeah, so you were living in this beautiful apartment in Bondi and um but shortly after that then you made the decision to move to the US, was that right? Yeah. So yeah. probably about a year after that. Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: It wasn't yeah. It was just going to be for two years, and then you know, four, four and a half years later, we were still, yeah, still there.
0: Yeah, and and so when and like I said, we met again when you were living then in um, California at Venice Beach, and um, it was really interesting because then you had started. I don't know what if you were what were you doing primarily when you first got to the US? Were you still working or mainly Palm Beach, black? Yeah,
1: I started working. with an uh, interior design and staging company. So we sort of teamed up uh, to do, yeah, I did all the styling and design work. She had all the inventory and it was quite a really good marriage in terms of um, it was something that I hadn't done before. Staging was also one of these things that you don't really grow up knowing about. And that was, that was quite, that was awesome because I just learned so much about that market and the staging work then to turn into more design work as customers that we'd sold houses to then wanted us to go and then decorate their new homes and it just sort of all sort of tied in together
0: how did you get that job
1: um that was just serendipitous that was me having conversation with someone at a coffee shop and talking about the work that i did and yeah we just sort of hit it off and just decided to give it a, give it a shot and it worked really well
0: you didn't know each other prior to that. No. that's amazing yeah she
1: said sort of, she'd had the the company and had all the furniture but didn't want to be doing the styling herself and i didn't want to invest in a huge amount of product and we weren't planning on being there for that long so it just yeah, yeah it sort of was a good marriage of skills i guess and resources to to start something
0: yeah and so then after I sort of left and, and kind of continued doing my book and, and so on, then I remember distinctly um, you sharing on social media about you having had health problems because of one of the homes that you had been living in. So mm. you um, so you were telling me a little bit earlier that it wasn't the home that's in the book, no. i was relieved to hear that, um, but you had to – they those owners had sold that place and then you moved into a new place and then you got sick. So can you just share a little bit about your experience with that? Because I just think that I've, it's, I guess it, I haven't had this experience myself, but I I'm hearing it more and more about people getting sick from their homes. And I think it's so important for us to be aware of the materials that are in a home and even sometimes how they're built and Absolutely. those other elements. So it's um, yeah. It, and it, kind of affects people indiscriminately it's it's just yeah like i said i'm hearing it more and more so can you share your story with that
1: absolutely i 100 percent agree with you like i'm sort of at that point now that that experience has just changed how i look at buildings and design things completely we moved um we moved to a house which was i think a sort of 70s craftsman house which had vaulted ceilings of wood paneling and i was very attracted to the character of the home. Unfortunately, with that, they'd done a quick renovation on the kitchen. Um, There was an integrated fridge, which we later found out was leaking and leaking into the subfloor. And they had put a sort of cheap vinyl flooring on, which had trapped the moisture so you couldn't see the water damage. And as we moved in and it was quite soon after I started, my health just started deteriorating quite rapid, rapidly and not really sure what was going on. And so,
0: so what were some of the symptoms that you got in the early stages? Oh, without if sounding you can like a hypochondria. <laughs> um,
1: I don't know why I still feel quite um, embarrassed about talking about it, because I think if someone had told me their experience before this, I don't know how sympathetic I would have been. I'd like to think I was, but the seems. So made up. It's not like someone with a broken arm or something where you can actually see it. it it's such, there's such random symptoms and it happens in such a funny way that it, the reaction you get from people when you tell them is, is quite varied. Yeah. Particularly even with doctors. And it was, yeah. That's why
0: we need to talk about it. Yeah, we do need to
1: talk about it. And I need to find a way to, to explain it um, properly. But for me, it started with uh, headaches, vertigo, uh, chronic fatigue my energy levels rapidly just deteriorated to a point where I couldn't even walk to sort of the end of the block and drop my son at school without going and lying down for three hours afterwards and at the time I had a my daughter was sort of maybe a year and a half so not an ideal time to not be able to take care of your young children my son was also quite sick we would sort of have episodes of like projectile vomiting and like a lot of I would be like sick to a point where I was just yeah throwing up and headaches, very dizzy. I started to slow my words and this is it, all very legitimate. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, but it it just seemed that you couldn't put your finger on what yeah, it was. Yeah,
1: I, I kept saying to my husband something's poisoning me, something's and I Went down the path of EMFs. It's this. It's because I knew something was affecting me, and I couldn't. And I thought well, either like it sounds really dramatic, but Either I'm a really big hypochondriac and I'm or I'm going crazy or I'm dying and it has to be one or the other because I don't nothing else makes sense. And I was seeing different doctors, I was getting these crazy sinus infections where I had staph pneumonia and um, strep sorry, strep, strep pneumonia, staph infections in my sinuses just continuously and going to see ENTs and seeing neurologists who were saying my function wasn't there, but they couldn't there was no physical you know, brain scans weren't showing anything so they couldn't really explain it. They would just send me to the next specialist, which was quite frustrating and I felt like, I felt like no one believed me. Um, and that was quite disheartening, not my family or my friends, but in terms of the doctors that I was seeing. And they would just try and prescribe me with antibiotics for whatever that symptom was at the time. And they weren't putting two and two together. and putting environmental factors together and it kept getting worse and I had to resign from my work and I had to stop working because it was getting so bad and, and what
0: kind of time frame is this happening over 6
1: months okay so it was 6 months from when we moved in to when we moved till we found the problem and it wasn't until I started listening to podcasts and trying to educate myself i guess on On things because i wasn't getting the help that i needed and i sort of discovered what integrated um, doctors do and found an integrated doctor in la which was expensive and it wasn't nothing was covered under health insurance and she started to put together a timeline of when did you move into your house what had happened in the last six months and paint a picture and put all the symptoms together and she just asked me is there mold in your house and i said no i don't I don't think so i said our fridge is leaking and i've asked our landlord to have a look at it and it, nothing had been done and i went home and i the floor had started to lift in front of the fridge and i thought maybe this is yeah i need to push this a little bit further and every, the next week they pulled the fridge out and opened the floor and the whole thing was just up the drywall under the floors in the backs of our kitchen cabinets so we'd actually been ingesting it in like in the fridge and that's why we were our stomachs and everything was so upset um as well as you know being on our plates and in our pots and pans and how did you feel
0: at that moment were you kind of either like i'd imagine just horrified but also maybe relieved as well because at least you know what it is yeah i i I think yeah did you cry
1: like i think i would have cried um i can't
0: Were you angry like
1: well our landlords were so sweet and they were such lovely people and it wasn't intentional that i couldn't ever be angry at them and as soon as they found out they tried to remedy it yeah i mean not, not so much no, angry
0: it, at them but like i this, was more you know. angry
1: at the doc like i was upset that i'd been made to feel so crazy yeah because um, i really started to question myself
0: yeah and it I really bet. affected
1: my mood and my hormones and like that it affected everything in my yeah. body to what I could eat and it's been such a long process and an expensive process to get to where I am now when I'm probably still only 80% of feeling like my normal self and it's been, yeah, it's been years. It's wow. been two and a half years. So so I guess as soon as you
0: found that, did you
1: move out of that house? Then, we, moved, we moved out and they um, remediated the kitchen. They actually had to pull out the entire kitchen, the drywall, um, subflooring everything was very expensive for them and we agreed to move back in and try it but i moved we moved back in and i had reactions straight away yeah uh it was because it would have been in the heating system and with that like my i was so sensitive at that point that it wasn't an option for me to go back yeah and the interesting thing is um what i learned is that not everyone is affected by mold my husband was completely fine my daughter was fine but my yep. son and I had reactions, and it I think it comes down to like a gene mutation, yeah, of whether you actually store the mold or you detox it, yeah, and for me, I was storing it, so right uh, I've got such high levels of myotoxins in my system now that, yeah, it, you don't naturally get rid of it. you have to be helped to detox that from your system, yeah, but it just shows that. The health of your home is so important, the materials that we use, the things that we're choosing um, not to take shortcuts in the way that we approach things because the ramifications can be quite serious and it isn't something that you can see or, yeah, it's it's something that's just sort of people starting to acknowledge how serious it is. Um, But at the time, yeah, just no one sort of knew about it and I felt very, yeah kind of alone in my discovery and doing the research by myself
0: yeah and like I'm sure that this is probably something that's been affecting people for Mm. decades and if not hundreds of years but they would probably just have been told that they were crazy and I mean it's good that now there is this greater awareness I mean I know certainly with my um my husband he's definitely sensitive to mold he can walk into a room and say it's really moldy in here there's something mold and Mm. I'm really (laughs) <laughs> you Are know, And it really affects him. And he used to get sinus infection, infections a lot when he was working in um, air-conditioned offices because mm. I guess things are just recirculating, with, particularly within those kind of spaces. And since he's been working from home, he doesn't get sinus infections hardly ever. So it's, yeah, we really are so affected by our environment in that way.
1: Yeah, I wanted to go and live in a tent in the desert. That's sort of the point that I got to. Yeah. Like I just was, yeah, it was... Yeah, I'd sort of lost my mind, I think, for a little while, but as soon as you out of that and two weeks out of that environment, I would notice the difference and be like, oh, that's my normal self again. Wow, my brain is working again. And it's funny because I thought I was pregnant a lot of the time because the symptoms, you know, not being able to remember, feeling sick, uh, head, just all that. I kept at the beginning just doing pregnancy tests. I was like, I'm sure I must be pregnant. What yes. else could it be?
0: yeah yeah <laughs> but it was and so then when you moved into your next home what did you look for because i'm sure you must have been a bit paranoid almost of like i've got to make sure that wherever i live next is super healthy like the checks that you can do or did you um
1: we weren't so good with the next one because it was sort of a temporary it was just like a bit of a panic of we need to find somewhere to stay and then we moved into a more permanent um and my husband just chosen it, it was a it was a new build, which for me, I just love old homes. But he just said to me, you, This is not what works for you and your health right now. This, yes, it's romantic and it's, you know, it's beautiful. But we, what we need is a new home that, you know, is well built. It has a lot of airflow, a lot of natural light. And so we ended up moving into a, a new build, which was all those things. It had really big windows. It had, um, really good air circulation, and my yeah things just got so much better for me quite quickly in there.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so is that where you were living prior to coming yes. back to Australia most recently? Yes. And so, yeah, well, I felt very lucky to be in that
1: house. I resisted it at, at the beginning because, yeah, as I said, I wasn't really my, my style. But it's more important to be healthy than it is to sort of have these sort of romantic notions, and I will get to a point where I can live in old homes again, I'm sure, but it's not, It's not, yeah, for me right now.
0: Yeah. And so, okay, so you said that you had to stop working when you got really sick. And so then at what point did you start returning to work? And was that then doing private interior design jobs?
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah, so
0: I started going back,
1: just working, um, like consulting. I was working for my, um, for my husband doing styling for his events. Uh, but, yeah, it's sort of just been the last year or so that I've sort of gradually been increasing the work I do and the, the size of the projects. Uh, so last year was probably my first proper year back back working again.
0: And and what a year it was, though. It was <laughs> <you, laughs> I know, we were, again, we were just talking about this prior to recording, but um, there was two big, at least two big that I know of, interior design jobs that you were working on. One being with, um, we both know Jody Fried from Armadillo & Co, who's an amazing person. She's, I can't wait to get her on the podcast yeah. one day. Um, she, yeah, I, I've known her for a very long time. We sort of kind of, our journey's sort of gone in parallel and it's been so amazing to see what she's grown with her business. But, um, but you've been doing some work with her on her own home, is that right?
1: Yes, yeah, so we've been working on that. That They built a really amazing home in in venice i
0: don't know when it
1: was finished maybe a year and a half two years ago and we've been sort of working on that um mainly sort of consulting with her and doing the furnishings obviously she's got amazing talent and um taste herself so it's been sort of a collaboration of us working together um on that for quite some time and we've just finished that sort of a couple months ago the furnishing of that place And then I had another big project sort of from July last year until November.
0: And that's the one that has just been published in Architectural Digest in the US. So can you share how you got that job and what was involved
1: with it? That came from a like word of mouth, like a recommendation. But I had met my clients um, socially before that and we had sort of connected over uh, conversations about antiques and materials with patina and uh, materials that had had past lives and we were sort of very much on the same um same path in terms of our value systems in terms of design and they started to tell me about the house that they had previously recently just built and they would moved in with all their furniture from their previous home and they were ready to start um redecorating um properly and they asked me to come and have a look at it Um, They were actually leaving to go to London the next day to film. And I, yeah, I went over there the next morning and we just, it just worked. And we, yeah, started, I started the, you know, quite soon after that.
0: So a lot of people who listen to this podcast and I I, I know that they're very much at the beginning of their journey and to sort of land a, a client that's got presumably a decent kind of budget It's like the ideal. Were you given carte blanche? And what was the actual process? Like, did you have to submit mood boards? Can you just like break it down a little bit? What was the actual process with that job?
1: Yeah, so the job grew um, as my experience with every every other project you start um, and the scope of work changes. Um, And so we were we were just going to do the living room upstairs and it ended up being um, the majority of the house. Uh, I presented mood boards at the beginning. I did a lot of digital mock-ups. They were overseas the entire time, so everything that I had to work to was all digital presentations. We, they were sort of across all the major purchases, but a lot of it they gave me the
0: freedom to do myself, which was, um, which was really nice. Were they very mm-hmm. specific about what they wanted or did you have carte blanche to, to do Whatever, well, not whatever you want, but you know, like sometimes it's what it's finding that right balance between what they want and and giving you the freedom to kind mm-hmm. of go and source what you think's right. I would say a bit of
1: both. They're definitely very um, they were quite particular about the the mood and the feel that they wanted and the types of um, things they wanted in there, but they didn't want to achieve a certain look or aesthetic, which most of the other clients that I've worked with. Sort of want to go to an aesthetic rather than a feeling, and they were more motivated by uh, a feeling rather than, I guess, achieving a certain look that fitted a certain um, category. Uh, The process was quite intuitive. I sort of made choices that reflected their individuality, um, their values, and at times even their sense of humor. I one of one of them have has a very sort of um, deep-seated passion for antiques and and collectibles, and so we sort of built on that premise they had a they have a beautiful furniture collection already, so I just sort of drew inspiration from that and kept the process evolving from there and they have a beautiful art collection so i the colors and the and the mood boards I created were sort of taken from things that they already owned. When we sort of walked around the house, I asked them to point out things that they loved and they treasured, and I asked them why, and that sort of built my value system from there as to, as to what their motivations were and what, what they expected
0: and what they would connect to. Yeah, and so if you don't mind kind of getting a little bit practical with it, like, because again, because I think many people who, who listen, they don't know how to go about uh billing hours like working did you like log your hours or was it a set fee and and how do you work like do you use InDesign, or what, what do you use like the technical practical components of actually designing and and charging for your services how do you how do you work that out and and how do you do that
1: so i usually charge a consult fee to begin with to my time to come out uh To do a initial mood board and set the tone, and then that is obviously credited if you, you know, if we move forward. And then I usually work to an hourly basis. Um, if it's a, if the scope of work is quite easy to define, I will give a project price, um, to to a limit, and then you know, with a certain amount of changes that they can make, uh, because sometimes you nail things in one or two goes, and sometimes it really it can be quite a lengthy process. So there has to be reasonable expectations of the, And I just set that out as a statement of works. Um, how many changes that involves, what the hours that looks like for me, if that's a project price. If not, if it's more just an hourly price, I, can, I just charge, charge hourly and sometimes we just cap it.
0: Yeah, because I think that's one of the things about interior design is it can be like how long is a piece of string sometimes yes. and it can be very hard to um to kind of foresee with some things how long it can take to find the right piece Mm -hmm. and you you don't want to feel guilty about charging if it's taking you longer than what you might anticipate but at the same time you've got to charge for your for your time like Yeah, yeah and i think and uh from my experience uh
1: sourcing antiques takes a lot longer than sourcing new product because it is like it it can take a lot of time to find the right piece and for that i give sort of you know a set hours and if it does go over that then you can continue to, to charge or another way to do it is obviously to to do a markup on product so you obviously get a designer discount and you absorb that so that also helps cover part of the design cost yep so i mean for me i prefer to focus more on the hours spent because it's just what sort of worked for me Um, But sometimes it's a combination of a markup on product plus my time. But I have learnt setting, sort of set prices for project. I have been burnt in my early days where things took me a lot longer than what I expected. And then your hourly rate really, when you start looking at it, diminishes quite quickly. So that's sort of what I've learnt to put in my statement of works is the sort of expectation in time. And then when once that goes over, if the scope of work changes, then that is obviously revised in the way that we charge.
0: Yeah. And so in amongst all of this, yes. I know, I again, like see, sort of seeing from Instagram that you kind of come backwards and forwards a couple of times to Australia to work on a couple of projects here, including the one that we're at at the moment, which is the Beach Ranch in um in Angauri. So, which I'm always amazed at that you kind of you come and you're doing a little trip to Australia and and I'm um, renovating a, a an outdoor area or a kitchen or whatever it is. And and obviously that's working on a very different budget, I would imagine. And um, sort of using sort of like local trades, local, you know, it's a smaller community so you've got smaller resources to pull on. So what, what are some of the, the big things that you've learned from doing these kind of projects in Australia? And I guess they're predominantly for Airbnb, right? Uh, yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So as you say, like I've, been, I've had to sort of do bite-sized projects um, while I am in the country and, and actually some projects I've done completely remotely. Um, I feel like my, the last couple of years of the projects I've been working on, a lot of it has been remote working um my clients have been overseas or i've been overseas from the project and i've just learned to be very good at um mocking things up digitally and being very very specific and granular with uh what i'm what i want
0: so and, so okay just to stop you there <laughs> so what are you mocking it up on uh i actually use keynote, for keynote? Of, I, yeah um, for a lot of things you I have mean, to give me a crash course I tutorial know, um, afterwards
1: <laughs> it's it doesn't seem that sophisticated but for me it, it works for my purposes i mean to go and i use sketchup for floor plans and things like that but if i'm just trying to give the electrician say a position for an outlet or something like that i find it really easy to to drop things in and give measurements and just sort of cut and paste things in a like in a keynote keynote platform And just send them a visual of what i'm talking about and i will sort of like drop in a photo of the room and actually mock it up on the room so that they can see it um and it just has helped me so
0: much i'm i'm gonna ask you did you use keynote when you were working for the iconic or is that where you learned it? no i don't know i don't actually don't remember when i started
1: using it and i've never met anyone else that uses it in the way that i do but people always ask me when they see the work that I do I mean I guess I use it for decks like when I create mood boards and I do presentations to begin with and then I just sort of kept playing with it and realizing that it just visually represents what I want to achieve so quickly that it yeah it just sort of serves my purposes really well really efficiently
0: I love that because I think people get so hung up sometimes on that. You have to use this program or you have to use that program. And it really does come down to what's easiest for you and what gets the results that you want. So it it really doesn't have to be about doing what everyone else is doing. It's just, yeah, what works for you? I mean, I use InDesign because that's my background in magazine publishing is that that's what we would use. And I use InDesign for everything because I'm just so familiar with the program.
1: And I, yeah, I think the more you use something, the more efficient you become at it, and it just becomes your sort of yeah go-to. And for me, yeah, I, as I said, I use SketchUp a lot, but I and I have used InDesign in the past. But for me, the way my brain works, it's just a very quick, easy way to sort of get an idea across when I can't be there to show someone in person.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, so. We've spoken about a healthy home, but I know that sustainability is that rain? Gosh, it's really starting to pour down. It's been such (laughs) a funny day of like sometimes the sun's coming out and then it's pouring with rain, but that's okay. (laughs) Um, Now, I know that having a healthy home is well, can we just touch on because we didn't really like what are some of the key components that you look for in terms of making a home healthy with materials? What are some of the things that you learned? A couple of the big takeaways
1: Um, I think
0: Obviously, airflow like ventilation is a, a huge
1: component. Um, natural materials that that do breathe and actually sh- like if there is water damage, you'll see it because it's not plastic; it's not hiding anything. So I think that's really important. That um, if something's going to get damaged, you're gonna you're gonna know about it pretty quickly. Uh, I think obviously you can't see walking in what kind of paint people have used or anything like that, but. Uh, when you go to do it, obviously choosing paints, um, finishes and things like that, that have low VOCs is super important. The way things are glued together and um, whether you're looking at a kitchen or something else, looking at the materials and sort of looking at their like material safety data sheets and actually seeing what is in this and what is it rated and um, doing a bit of research. But in terms of just walking into a house, I guess natural light, Uh, Yeah, the flooring, the ventilation, those types of things sort of make it a little bit healthier.
0: Yeah. And so what I was going to say is that you're also quite passionate about sustainable design, aren't you? Like That's one of the things that you're quite passionate about, Um, which I do feel that they go often quite hand in hand. A healthy home is often quite a sustainable home. What are some of the things that you've done or materials that you like to try and use in spaces that are very sustainable? Or what are some of the big lessons that you've learned about sustainable design?
1: I guess for me, sustainable design, like everyone has a different approach to it. For me, it's about legacy and um, circular economy. And growing up in an antique store, I sort of had this appreciation that if something's well built and well made, it will live Uh, it will outlive you in a positive way. So I'm looking at furniture that may have been sold three, five, maybe 20 times and had different chapters and different owners because it is well built and well made and it can be refinished. It can be fixed if it gets damaged, whereas you sort of buy something that is cheap and made out of MDF. Once you damage it, it's done. It goes into landfill and it still outlives you, but it outlives you in landfill giving off harmful gases. So for me, when I look at something, that i choose i sort of think okay well beyond this use where is it going to end up is it going to be able to be refinished or repurposed or sold on to somebody else it's going to give it another life um and can it be recycled can it can it biodegrade that's these are the things that i'm looking at i sort of tend to look at the end of life um, and not just the single purpose of whether it's a light or a um a piece of furniture or the material made to use a kitchen, for example, okay. Beyond this use, this use in 10 years' time and 15 years' time, what can people do with it?
0: Yeah, and um, I guess just circling back to, to one of the other things that we were talking about is um, you so you had started your business Palm Beach Black. So are you still doing anything with that, or what, where are you at with that? And what's your focus now at the moment? Is it mainly interior design?
1: Yeah, so I, I haven't run the store for for some time because it was just quite hard for me to to be traveling back and forth and being um, my customer base in Australia and being based in America, it seemed counterproductive to start shipping things all over the world. Um, wasn't really where I wanted the business to go and uh, working for clients and being more service-based was sort of hitting more of my targets of what I wanted to do and the imprint that I wanted to leave. Um, I still would like to make products eventually, but at the moment it doesn't, yeah, it didn't sort of, it didn't serve me and it didn't sort of serve its purpose. I also found, I didn't sort of, I left, I've lost the name, I've rebranded as my own name because it is more of a service that I'm offering, but also I found it hard to have a tone and it just, it didn't mean anything to me anymore. It was, um, yeah, it just, I sort of outgrew it, I guess. and. Uh, Hopefully the brand can evolve and I'm not really sure where I want to go with it, but it will probably, um, if I do make products, it will be with a focus on um, materials that have have found and reused rather than sort of creating new.
0: Yeah. And so what are you working on? Any other interior design projects at the moment other than these two here? (laughs) I have one um, here
1: in Australia that I'm doing from distance, but my main focus at the moment is um, the i've got a two-bedroom unit that i'm renovating um adjacent to this one which has been yeah it's sort of grown it was going to be sort of a smaller sort of um smaller project when we were thinking we would go back to la but um since we're going to be sort of here for some time now it's sort of grown um the project has grown and we've done a full renovation
0: yeah and do you think are you in your kind of your happy place in terms of the type of work that you're doing at the moment I am yeah I'm really enjoying it I think
1: I've found a way to explain to trades that what's what's important to me when I am um, when I am making changes and that has really helped the process I've obviously become more confident in um, in my choices and also to the way that I communicate instead of feeling like I'm Um, being painful in terms of my decisions, which is something that I've come across a lot in the the past. is sort of doing it the way that I want to do it is not necessarily the most um, efficient or the most economical, but I'm sort of thinking long-term and not just short-term. And that is something that I've had to find a way to explain to whether it was the people that were making my cushions years ago that kept asking me to buy material off the roll Um, or if it's a tradesman sort of trying to do something, you know, quite quickly and I'm diddly-daddling trying to find, you know, a vintage door to use instead of, you know, a new one or something like that. It's just sort of, um, yeah, being able to communicate has been a big learning for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I I do think it's one of the the harder things about sort of trying to build more sustainably and in a more healthy way, being really conscious of the materials that are used, because so many trades do things because that's the way it's always been done. And then if you're suddenly questioning what, what material, which grout are you using and, and what's the kind of the toxicity mm. of that and um, you're trying to research or until you kind of get to that sort of learning threshold of you know instantly what is the one that you want mm. um that's certainly my experience at the moment it's i'm kind of on a bit of a sharp learning um mm-hmm. curve and just not sort of saying oh well that's just you go with what's always been done like to actually question every material that is used and then people start to, and to not annoy people when you yes. do it and i think
1: i think you're absolutely right it's and for me just sort of bring it back what i the main thing i've learned is yet yeah, to question but then to avoid um annoying not annoying but like uh, how, do, how do i put this um well, an well, example they want to get the job done don't yeah they, they yeah. want to get the job done and not offending someone because they obviously have expect expertise in that area and they are doing it the most efficient employee trying to save you money and they have all the best intentions in the world, and then you start questioning them, you don't want to offend that person. And I remember listening to a podcast about um, going low waste, and I'm, her name um, evades me now, but the French lady that started the whole low waste movement, I remember listening to her when she started and her experience of going into a cheese shop, or I can't remember the example, and asking them if she could use her own containers because she didn't want to use their plastic ones. And of course, the man in the cheese shop got offended because she was putting the onus on him to provide the low waste solution and she found the response to be quite defensive and then she realized that she had to explain her values and put it back on herself and go in and say hey i'm i'm really trying i've challenged myself to do this i would really appreciate if, if you could help me do it um, i'd really you know value your input and then the reaction to that being completely like of course we can do that and just a different sort of reaction and i find the same way when i go and talk to trades or something is to explain to them the values and why i want to do it and once they know they're so happy to help and so happy to learn and that's what i found with installing the ply kitchen in the project i'm doing at the moment the quickest most efficient way is to do an mdf kitchen but when i started explaining the reason i wanted to do ply was because i had to look at maybe in 10 years time i might want to sand it back and refinish it or add handles and it gives me the option to be able to make those changes later on they went oh of course I don't know why we haven't sort of thought of that before and then super helpful in trying to source that um material for me
0: yeah yeah no that's really really good um Piece of advice. Okay, I've got um, a few other um, questions that I wanted to ask you. Um, oh, before I do, though, I will quickly ask you this. I know that, 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 that I feel like we could talk and talk and talk, but um, I did want to just ask you about Instagram because I do think that this is such an important tool. For anyone really who's got a creative, well, any kind of product or service, but certainly within the creative fields, Instagram feels best suited to sharing your work, sharing your journey, um, you know, all of that kind of thing. But obviously we don't always share every part of the journey. How do you choose to show up on Instagram? How do you see that tool and what do you share and why do you share it? And can you just give a little bit of an insight into that?
1: Well, I don't I don't think I use Instagram very well. And I listened to your podcast a couple of episodes ago and I just listened to it going, I don't do that. I don't do that. Um, I tend to get so caught up in whatever I'm working on at the time that I might take photos, but I absolutely forget to post them and share as I'm working on things. And that's something that I'm trying to do more now is to involve people in the process as it happens, because the last couple of years, I've just been taking photos and then then thinking, oh, I should share that now. And it's, it's already sort of come and happened. And I haven't been able to give a sort of genuine explanation of what I'm doing at the time. So I'm definitely trying to do things a little bit more timely at the moment. I did have my handle as Palm Beach Black for a long time, which I found quite restrictive in that, particularly more because I was going more into service um, rather than selling product. I couldn't find my tone I couldn't find my voice and it was quite hard for me and but I I sort of started with that name because I wanted to hide behind it and I wasn't I didn't want to have my face out there a, on a on a public profile I'm a very private person my husband's even more private and it's taken a lot of confidence for me to 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 share and I don't share a lot of personal stuff on there but it has helped me sort of change to my name because I can explain my reasoning for things and my values a little bit better um, using my own voice.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. Well, even if you don't tick off the, the things that I've mentioned, I certainly think you have a very beautiful feed and it's very authentic. And I think that your passion for sustainable design and for a healthy home really comes through. And, and I do think it's interesting that it's, it's such a personal decision about whether you do share more of your private life or not. And there's no right or wrong answer. It really does just come down to what feels right for you. And I know personally, I've kind of gone more one way and then I've gone more the other. And um, yeah, I, I think that, and I think it changes in your life as well at different seasons and maybe when kids are younger, it can, can feel a different way. But um, yeah, there isn't a right or wrong, but just what feels right for you. And I think you know with Deep Within, whether that's what you want to do or you don't want to do, you just got to listen to that kind of internal gut instinct. Yeah. All right. I'm going to I've got some uh, questions here and um, these I'd I'd love hearing people's answers because they're always quite different, and it gives a little bit of an insight into you and your journey and your process. So the first question, as I always say, is the hardest one. I I might have to revisit these questions because everyone struggles with the first one. But it's really what comes to top of mind. Um, What five words would uh, best describe you?
1: Uh, Resourceful. Uh, I'm a Uh. (laughs) dork. I'm hardworking, I work, that's definitely um, intuitive. Um, optimistic maybe, yeah, is that five?
0: Around <laughs> <laughs> that, we don't have to be pedantic about it. What's the best life or career lesson you've learned? Mm. Just
1: to trust in the process, I think um yeah i think just to yeah not get too caught up in an outcome and just to sort of to just trust that my decision making is going to work out i think that's probably my biggest sort of career learning um is to yeah trust in my own creative process and that i don't need to be able to see the complete end result but it I will get there through through problem-solving and, um,
0: yeah, that would yeah, probably be it. Yeah.
1: I don't know. That's a hard one to answer <laughs> Yeah.
0: Sorry. <laughs> oh, I torture people with these questions, but it's so interesting. Uh, what's your proudest career achievements? Definitely the project
1: we just talked about being featured in Architectural Digest. I mean, I think, obviously, I was um, floating on some pretty big coattails of a very famous architect and some her profile clients but i believe that my my work was the best reflection of um, who i am as a as a designer and it just sort of ticked a lot of boxes in terms of being able to be completely free to not only aesthetically achieve the look and feel that i wanted but to have the freedom and the trust to also make um, the right sustainable decisions i think I was very um, particular about recording all my purchases on that and I went back and did a report on that for my client and over 80% of my budget was actually spent on um, antiques or vintage materials. And that was something I was really, really proud of because that's where I want to go. And I think it, it is hard to explain that to people and people do want a little bit of it, but to have someone that just went, yep, yeah, absolutely lean into it and just completely be so aligned with my value system was just so liberating and I came away from that just thinking I've done this huge home and I can tell you exactly the amount of waste that I created and I know that all those pieces that are going into there are going to either be handed on to their kids or taken to their next home and it just felt really really good and I think I sort of that was the pinnacle of okay this is that sort of this is where my career is going and this is what I want people to recognise in my work and, and ask me for, and sort of now knowing that if it doesn't sort of fit that that um, mould that I can walk away from work now.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that is such a, a big part of the kind of creative journey, particularly when you sort of get a little bit further along it and you get to that point where you really can in some circumstances, choose what you say no to, you know, you're not just Mm -hmm. working for the sake of working, but you're working on on the types of projects that you really want to. And that when you put that work out there and this is something I say a lot to people who do my styling course, is that you don't have to share all of your work, share the type of work that you want to do more of. Yes. And um, I think that when you kind of talk about that and you um, yeah, you highlight that, then that's what you attract as well. And yeah. if that's the type of work you want to go forward, then it's really important.
1: And I think it's I've sort of struggled to find the um, the tone in which to talk about it, where it's not lecturous or it's not sort of um, grandstanding, you know, greenwashing or anything like that. This is just genuinely what I'm my process. And to talk at finding sort of the, the right tone of talking about that. And I think I've sort of got to that point where I, I can now. And I think people yeah can appreciate that process yeah, um, so I think that, yeah, my last sort of year or two of work has really sort of been that sort of um pinnacle of of finding that that balance. And then this sort of project was sort of, or it all sort of a, um, was a big, I guess, crescendo of all those sort of things working together. Um, and yeah, so that's why I'm, yeah, most proud of that 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 work,
0: yeah, yeah. and I, I think that that also draws on. Sort of when you say that on Instagram, if you use that as a way to share your journey about the materials you choose and why, it then isn't a kind of grandstanding. And I, I completely get what you say, that it's sometimes it can feel hard. Well, certainly does for me to sort of have that fine line between when you feel very passionate about it and you want everyone to kind of mm. convert to your way of thinking to sort of say, this is what you should do, you know. But when you just show that this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it and you show the journey of that. I think that that's often more captivating for people than sort of being told this is you know what you should do or this is my my philosophy, but you're not necessarily taking people on that journey with you. So anyway, a bit of a side <laughs> note. But <laughs> um, what's been your best decision? Um, I think
1: I think stopping working for other people. I mean, we obviously circling back that was where I didn't want to go for so long and I did avoid working for myself um, watching my parents run their own business but I think that has been the moment of really defining who I am what I stand for and then getting the work that I want because working for other people I was always um, yeah it was getting washed like everything was getting kind of watered down in terms of the choices that I made because they weren't all my choices to make. And so I think being able to work for myself, I can, I can be completely who I am and, and everything that I stand for in my
0: work. And I think that's been really liberating for me. Okay, yeah, I'm going to ask you another question <laughs> about that, sorry. That's all right. Because <laughs> I'm just curious that um, you say, because that was one of your big concerns, was that you saw your parents working so hard, working weekends. Is that what you're doing now? And if so, do you sort of see it, well, actually, maybe it wasn't so bad what they were doing because they were doing what they loved, or do you feel like you've created different types of boundaries so that you don't, maybe it's because it's more project-based rather than all the time. Like how have you managed to, to not relive that, or are you when you actually think it's fine?
1: I mean, I think not being tied down to a, a physical location like a retail store has obviously helped a lot um, doing project-based stuff. I can fit it in with our schedule. And um, I mean, not now, but we obviously were traveling a lot more back and forth than my husband travels for work. So I was able to sort of work projects in around what we were doing for the year rather than being tied down to a physical location of running a store. So I think that was was a main thing. And I think now that I look back at it, I'm so glad that I got to be part of what my parents did. I mean, they worked so hard um, and they just had this Blend of you know personal life. It was it was social for them. There were so many different layers to it that now I appreciate looking back at it. The parties that they had, the clients that became friends, all that, all that that came from it. And now my kids, they come with me when we're working on things, and they see how hard I work. And I think it's only adding value. I don't think, um, yeah. I sort of, I think it's a good a good balance now. There's of There's obviously times where I feel like. It's a little bit too much, um, and you feel guilty. But for the most part, it work. It works for us.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, back to the question. That's all right. <laughs> um, Who inspires you?
1: Um, I'm going to go back to my parents again with this one. That's obviously answer. But I think the fact that they have always stayed true to their ideals and their identity, sort of never been phased by fads or fashions or friends or anything, they've just always been who they are. And I think that that has been, even when it's been uncomfortable, I think they've just really stuck to their value system. And I think that that's something that I've taken away from them. I think as cheesy as it sounds, my husband, he's inspired me to be very fair in terms of work and always, um, always yeah, treat treat people really well in terms of business and be, very fair and also to take stock of where I'm at at the moment like he's very good at living in the moment whereas I can be a little bit sort of in the future with everything and so he sort of is very good at sort of bringing me back to the where we're at right now. In terms of career, uh, I'd say who inspires me at the moment is someone I discovered recently with Athena Calderon who's a New York-based designer and I think it a big aha moment for me is when she has a podcast called more than one thing and she talks about people that are sort of um multi-hyphenates and something that had always always been a little not ashamed but it was hard to explain what i did to people there was no 30 second elevator pitch that i could give people about my work and for me it didn't fit neatly in a box and i found that hard but she sort of in the way she talks about it has made me embrace what i do and be proud of it and i think that, that yeah that has inspired me a lot to sort of um yeah, really step into that
0: part of my um, personality i was actually listening to a couple of her podcasts on the drive down so there you go They're good, aren't they? yeah yeah no i love it I know she's she's amazing in what she's created and and her interiors but yeah just how she sort of shows up again on social media she seems very true to herself and yeah. yeah yeah no it's it's really great um what are you passionate about
1: I think, in terms of my career, like environmental stewardship would be um, the main thing, just being very aware that we're only like a blot on this earth and this timeline, and that making the most of our t- my time here and just making it count, I think that's sort of my my passion at the moment is just to yeah work out what what do I want to leave behind and um environmentally what kind of impact do i want to leave and that's what i'm sort of passionate about learning um i don't know everything and i'm you know quite compared to other people don't really know that much but i i'm very passionate about learning more and um yeah sort of teaching my kids um about being good stewards and looking after the, looking after the the the, the country and the earth that we live on
0: yep what dream do you still want to fulfill
1: mm, this career-wise or personal or either or? Uh, i mean the personal one it would be i've always wanted to do a seven day horse ride through montana that was something i wow. wanted to do <laughs> that's very random but like something that i wanted to do while we were in america i mean i think it's something that i've always wanted to do since i was a small child watching the horse whisperer but Probably my ideas of um, cattle ranchers have changed somewhat <laughs> as an adult, so maybe I don't want to do that <laughs> anymore. But um, I think to go out and do a few more sort of, when I don't have young kids, a few more sort of personal um, challenges like that, like physical and just sort of getting back to nature, which I think it's hard to do when you're, you're a mother of young kids to sort of take that time for yourself. But I think, you know, as I get older, that that will be sort of something that I'm, there's a few sort of dreams of the personal challenges that I would like to do that aren't options
0: for me right now, um, but that's good because I can look forward to them. Yeah, that's cool. Um, what are you reading? Are you reading anything at the moment? Any books or um, I don't know if I, I don't think people read magazines anymore. But uh... <laughs> I've got two books on the go at the moment. One's called White Girl. I can't remember who wrote that.
1: And then... Another one by Meg Mason called Sorrow and Bliss, which I've just started, but I don't seem to get through many pages without being interrupted. So, it,
0: yeah, I don't, I'm a slow reader. Yep. Um, what about, uh, you mentioned that you've sort of listened to quite a few podcasts. What are some of your, your favourite podcasts that you like to listen to? And, um, and I would love to get afterwards, maybe you can share the one, that, uh, the low-waste one that you mentioned earlier on. Um, we can put that in the show notes. I mm,
1: can't remember which one that was, but I listened to something called the Zero Waste Countdown, um, which has always sort of been helpful in terms of like moving into more of a low waste lifestyle. I haven't listened to that for a little while, but I have a lot in the in the past. Um, uh, obviously in print. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just started listening to one called I think it's called Always Was, Always Will Be, which is sort of more indigenous stories and focus, like more of that sort of focus.
0: So broadening what I'm what I'm listening to at the moment. And lastly, what piece of advice would you give to your younger self?
1: I think that probably comes back to that sort of lesson I learned is just to yeah, trust the process and I think learning that some sometimes seeds need time after they've been planted to grow into something. Like I think when you start your career, you think, I want to do this and I want to do this, and I want to do that, but not everything can happen at the very beginning and they may be sort of things that will happen within your career but you don't have to have them all at the one time in order to be successful or to feel successful. And I think just to, to acknowledge where you want to go with it but then also just to trust the process of actually getting there in a genuine, um, authentic way rather than forcing it.
0: Great. Thank you so much for for joining me today on this podcast. I'm glad that we finally made it happen. And um, yeah, I've, I've loved hearing a little bit more about your design process and your journey and and I hope that your story about um, your the health issues that you had really is kind of eye opening for people in the best kind of way and i hope that we can kind of continue to have these conversations and i look forward to seeing more of your journey on instagram as well Um, so yeah thanks so much thank you for having me you're welcome all right everyone i hope you've enjoyed this interview and learning more about arabella's creative journey before you go if you haven't done so already i'd really appreciate if you could take a minute to subscribe rate and review this podcast it really does help get the word out there to other people who might find it helpful. You'll find show notes for this episode at nataliewalton.com forward slash podcast forward slash 29 because this is episode number 29. Thank you to Jaeger Media for producing this podcast and the people of the Bunjalong Nation where it was recorded. I look forward to connecting again soon. I'm Natalie Walton and you've been listening to Imprint.